Greetings in Jesus' name this morning. It's good to see you all here. And this was very good to be here. I think we would actually have enough to go home on. I know that's something the main preacher often says when he gets up, but the fact is uh, we would have enough to go home on. Faith. It's... It's when God, in his word, says, this is who I am and this is reality, this is what I will do, this is the way things are. It's revelation. And when we believe God, that is faith. When we believe him, let's say it is, if we believe him enough to actually base our life on it that is faith I know John D. Martin had given this and uh, this came from somewhere else but he used this story about that man who walked on that wire from one side of Niagara Falls until another and he could walk on that wire then he could walk pushing a wheelbarrow on the wire, going over the falls. Did he forget when he asked his question? And he asked, do you believe I can do this? And everybody believed he can do it. Okay, who wants to get into the wheelbarrow? Nobody wanted to get in that wheelbarrow. We can all be, we all can believe that yes, but will you base your will you actually put your life in it, and that becomes faith. And I guess that's what Enoch did. Enoch just simply based his total life on God. Nobody special. He had sons and daughters. He was a family man. But one day God said, as they were walking, they said, "God said, this is implied." It's just closer for me to go, for us to go home to my place than your place. Why don't we just keep on going? So yes, we had enough we could go home on. But I think the Lord has more for us. Why don't we just pause for a word of prayer this time? Lord, we are grateful to you. You have not left us here. You have revealed to us with your word given us many great and precious promises and that by these we would have victory. We can overcome the devil. We can overcome by your grace the things in our own flesh. And Lord, we have hope and we have confidence for the future. So thank you, Lord. We want to look to you this morning and we want to enumerate the blessings that you have given to us. We have already had a lesson this morning about counting the blessings, even when there are holes in the blessings, when we consider their holes. Lord, you are good to us. And we pray, Lord, you would uh, become more marvelous before us this morning as we look into your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I had planned to speak on marriage this morning. And then I found out that most of the young couples are gone. 
And it's only young couples that have marriage issues, so I decided I'll just put that off. I hope they're not listening this morning. (laughs) So yesterday morning I put that on the shelf, and I thought, well, now what, Lord? What would you have for me? And so I reached back into one of my old sermons. Now, I heard someone, I don't remember who said it, Maybe it might have been Spurgeon, it might have been somebody else that said, if you want to be, you want to face chagrin, or you want to be humiliated or humbled, go back and read your old sermons. <laughs> well, I did that, and they're not all bad. <laughs> I reached back to an old sermon that I had, August of 2002. That's back when Neil's hair was brown. <laughs> and we were back at the Seventh Day Adventist building. <clears throat> and I titled it Ten Blessings in Christ. And I thought, and of course, a message like that doesn't come out the same the second time around, but it has the same outline. You know, our day, as we look over the Christian landscape and we see so many different ideas and denominations and different flavors and just a vast variety of people who call themselves Christians with widely divergent beliefs and practices. In fact, exactly opposite beliefs and practices, and they're all called Christian. And as one views all that, one might think, wouldn't it be nice to go back, back in the early church, be part of that early church before it was all this confusion? Back when things were clean and new and pristine. When the church was young, when she was powerful, when she was holy, surely things were not as confused and as muddled as they are today. There's a book that I read many years ago. Of course, it's an old message. He wrote, Ernest loosely wrote a book when the church was young. And in the foreword, he wrote this. He said, this is a quote now, the experience of the early church was very much like a young and growing child. There was newness and freshness in her. She knew exploration and experiment and discovery and wonder. And so there's been recently a lot of interest in the early church the apostolic church, and that's been good in many ways, I would think, because if you think of the confused Christianity we live in, it is good to go back and give the example of those early disciples. And uh, Ephesians chapter 2, I'm going to read just two verses here. Now therefore, ye are no more strangers and foreigners, talking about the Jews, but in fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. And so the metaphor of a building is given. Jesus Christ is a huge cornerstone that was laid first. And everything gets measured by the cornerstone. And then the apostles and prophets built the foundation. And then the church is built on it. That's the picture. 
That's the metaphor. So it would seem reasonable that the early church would be an example for us to follow. So, I'm going to talk about a congregation this morning that is brand new. In fact, it's only four or five years old. So if it's true that the early church was pure and pristine and powerful, it can't get much better than this. So I'd like you to turn to 1 Corinthians <laughs> chapter 1. It can't get much better than this. Well, I can see some eyebrows raised about, about now. Pure, pristine, and powerful. Anyone who is familiar with this letter knows that the Corinthians does not fit that diagram. It wasn't, it didn't seem like it was the Corinthian Christian fellowship. It was more like Corinthian Christian confusion. Or maybe it was disorganized, unchristian disunity. Sometimes we romanticize the early church. And when you romanticize, that simply means you glamorize something. Or you see things through rose-colored glasses. We see beauty when we romanticize something, but it's distorted reality. Exactly what we see. So as Paul is sitting down to write this letter, this letter to the church that he had started not that long before, and then he had left, he sees a sea of issues and problems. I'm going to name some of them, not all of them, because it would take too long probably. But there was disunity, there was immorality, there were lawsuits, there was improper use of gifts, there was improper view of liberty, there was an improper position of the women, there was improper lifting up of leaders, there was improper observance of the Lord's Supper. There was a lack of humility, there was a lack of love, there was a lack of spiritual growth. And you could keep on going. How would you start a letter to a church like that? If you would want to write a letter and you see all those issues, how would you start a letter? How did Paul feel? We actually know how he felt. Do you know? We know how he felt. If you turn to 2 Corinthians, well, you don't have to turn there. I'm going to read one verse in 2 Corinthians where he is stating how he felt when he wrote the first letter. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 4, and he states how he felt. For out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote unto you with many tears, not that you should be grieved, but that ye might know the love which I have more abundantly to you. Someone has said there were more tears than ink on his parchment. That is how Paul felt when he wrote this first letter. But that's not the thought you get when you begin to read the letter. Instead, we see uh, blessings coming. We see him blessing them. 
And someone had described this like Paul had bifocals on. I have bifocals. You can't see them because we got the invisible lines now. <laughs> but with bifocals, you have two visions in your glasses, one for close vision and one for far vision. And, and so we all want to see far away. We need to see far away, but we also want to see close up. Both are necessary. Well, Paul saw the church as it is, close up. But he also saw it as he, the long-range vision of what he wanted the church to be. He also saw that. So he saw the church as it really was, the carnal church. Then he sees the church as he hopes it to be. And in this kind of bifocal view, Paul can write, and one of the things he writes, um, I just thank, I thank my God always on your behalf. His greeting, which is a form of a blessing, is pronounced on them. Yeah, that's in verse 4, if you're, if you're there. So this morning, as we look at each other, <laughs> We ought to have bifocals on too. We we can't ignore each other's issues and faults, okay? When we look at each other, we need to see the issues we have with each other. But then we also need to see the potential in each other. So we all need bifocals. So this morning, we're going to look at how Paul addresses them. And uh, I titled it, Ten Blessings in Christ. Now we're going to read the first 10 verses and see how many of the blessings you can pick out in those first 10 verses. Paul, called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ, through the will of God and Sothenes, our brother, unto the church of God, which is at Corinth, to them that are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, with all that on every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. Grace be unto you, and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always on your behalf for the grace of God which is given you by Jesus Christ, that in everything ye are enriched by him in all utterance and in all knowledge, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you, so that ye came that ye come behind in no gift, waiting for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall also confirm you unto the end, that ye might be, may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom ye were called unto the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that ye be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. In those first ten verses, Christ is mentioned in each verse, or is referred to in each verse. Now, if Paul would have had a beat-up VW and he would put a bumper sticker on that said, Christ is the answer, do you think he would actually believe that? I think he would. Do 
Now, is that bumper sticker, Christ is the answer just for lost people? (laughs) Or is Christ the answer for saved people? How about that? He is. The church is not a home for sinners. It is a school for disciples. So before, before Paul goes into the letter with his nearsighted bifocals and sees the issues and addresses them, he goes over the blessings that they have in Christ. So we're going to go over them. And so I have 10 of them. I'm going to name them off and then we'll go point by point after them. Number one is called of Christ. Number two, sanctified in Christ. Number three, peace through Christ. Four, grace from Christ. Five, enriched by Christ. Six, confirmed in Christ. Seven, waiting for the coming of Christ. Eight, blameless through Christ. Nine, fellowship in Christ. Ten, unity in Christ. So I don't know what Christ has in store for any of us. Paul knew what was coming. And so he starts with blessing. Now, we don't know what's coming, but the Lord does rebuke and does chasten us. And we go through hard times and we have donut holes. (laughs) And so it's good for us just to look at the blessings that we have in Christ so that we are prepared for what comes for us this week that we may re- love him more and respond to his correction better. So, number one, we are called of Christ. And that would be, of course, Paul was called to be an apostle. And in verse 2, called to be saint. But we're going to focus on being called. We have all been called to be saints. And Paul was called to be an apostle. But before Paul was called to be an apostle, he was called to be a saint. Even sent ones are first saved ones. How many of you would want to... Now, so maybe, maybe I gotta change this metaphor a little bit. I'm going to use the metaphor of a crashed car. Mankind is all crashed. <laughs> no longer, we're no longer original pristine showroom condition, are we? But most of our time, most of people's time in their crashedness and that's a new word i had a my my spelling my spell checker didn't like that word but in our crashedness we spent most of our time examining others crashedness and we say well that one is crashed worse than this crash i'm not as crashed as bad as that crash but the fact is we are all crashed we are all crashed Some crashes are so bad, they destroy the people that are inside the crash and destroy people that are outside the crash. So there's bad crashes, and there's less bad crashes. But we are all crashed, and we're all bent up, we're all distorted, and we're all broken. 
And our primary problem is that we are sinners and have offended God. And like the verse says, we were all foolish and disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures. And we were passing our day in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. So way back in eternity, way back, way back before there was a world, back in the triune councils of God, there was a plan devised to redeem mankind that when God was going to create the world, he knew that man would fall and he knew that there would need it to be a redemption. And that was all devised in the past. And that plan included Christ laying aside his glory, coming on earth, and living a sinless life and teaching about the Father, showing us who the Father was, and then dying on the cross and being buried. Which should have been the end of it, but it wasn't. He rose again. And that is salvation. He rose again to be a high priest to call people back to God, sinful people back to God. And then he sends out the invitation He calls to crashes everywhere. Come to me, all ye who are broken and wrecked and crashed and smashed. And I will restore you and make you useful again. So it's the call. It's like when you get an invitation to a wedding, you get an invitation, you get a call. Come to the wedding. You are invited. But to come to the wedding, you need to put your stuff aside that you're doing, and you need to come to the wedding. Come to the feast, which is Christ. Now, you could ask the question, why did God call you? Why did he call me? Did he have to call you? What did he see in me? Did he get the bargain? Why didn't he just let us go like he did the devil and just allow us to remain in that crashed junkyard. Mark Twain, who was not a Christian, had something right concerning salvation. He said, heaven goes by favor. If it went by merit, you would stay out and your dog would go in. (laughs) None of us deserve this calling. But this calling is a blessing. Christ called us. It is one of the blessings that that we have in Christ is that we've received a call. We've received an invitation. And there can be no higher calling than sainthood. We say often that this is the most important decision anyone can ever make is to call is to respond to the call of the gospel, the call of God to to uh, repent of our sins and to trust in his salvation. So that's number one. Truly to be called to Christ is a blessing. And to have responded to that call is the gateway to all the other blessings that we have here. So number two is sanctified in Christ. The church of God, 
and I'm going to read the verse here. The church of God, which is at Corinth, to them that are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. Sanctified means to be set apart, not common, but holy. It's the same word as, you know, the Lord's Prayer. We've called the Lord's Prayer. It's called the Lord's Model Prayer. He says, hallowed be thy name. That's the same word. We could say, sanctified be thy name. Set apart is your name, Lord. That's really what it means. Your name is unlike any other name on earth. And so we could also say, we are hallowed in Christ. It does no, no, no violence to scripture to say we are hallowed in Christ because we're set apart. And we've been set apart for a special purpose. The church is not a part of the world. Neither are you. If you are set apart to Christ, neither are you a part of the world. You have been set apart from the world. We've been called. We've been separated. And we've been separated to be restored by the original manufacturer taking the element of the uh, the crashed car. Now, this is actually a position and a condition, the sanctified is. As a position, it means that when someone repents of their old life and turns around and believes in the Lord Jesus, that person is saved. And the Bible says he's transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his dear son. There's a transferring from one kingdom to another. That's a position. But then it's also a condition. Because once a person has been set apart, he's been supposedly um, put in the shop, so to speak, there's still a lot of things wrong with him. And so that sanctified in Christ means a process. There's lots of things that are not desirable in your life. There are struggles and temptations. Someone has said it's our life is not like a 40 degree, 45 degree upward path. Now we start, we get saved and then we start going and we just go. It's more like, well, someone says more like the stock market. <laughs> you never, you just never know what's going to happen and it's all over the place and you can go up, and you can go down, and you can go all, but generally, you should be going up. <laughs> Not always successful in your failures and temptation, but you haven't given up. You yearn for more. You grieve your failures. You wish for more. That's right. You are sanctified in Christ. That is your position. And your condition is... That you've been called to be a saint. You've been selected and you've been separated from other junk cars and you are being worked on. So sainthood, you've been called as saints, is simply a noun, meaning that your repairs are occurring. Some of your parts are being replaced. Some of your parts are being bent straight. But you are, the general thing is you are under Christ's care and you are in Christ's work. So that's the second blessing, sanctified in Christ. 
Then we have number three, peace, peace through Christ. Grace unto you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Psalms 4, 8 says, I will lay, I will both lay me down in peace and sleep for thou, Lord, only maketh me dwell in safety. That's a statement of faith. <laughs> I will lay down and I will go to sleep because thou, Lord, thou only maketh me dwell in safety. Do you remember when you used to go to bed and you were afraid to die? Do you remember that yet? You were afraid Christ might return and you weren't ready. Maybe you were hoping to reform and get rid of some of that awful guilt, but it never worked. Isaiah 57:21 says, There is no peace, saith my God, to the wicked. And that is true. But Paul, after naming some terrible, terrible sin that the first Corinthians, that, that the people in Corinth were into, he reads there in 1 Corinthians 6, 11, And such were some of you, talking about wicked people, such were some of you, but you are washed, but ye are sanctified, but ye are justified. In the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of God. How were you justified? How were you sanctified? In the name of Jesus and by the Spirit of God. So being in Christ and walking with Christ brings peace through Christ. And that's not a little blessing. It's no matter what happens to this world, no matter what happens to me, no matter what happens to anybody, we can be at rest because things are well with our soul. How did that song go? It is well with my soul. Though all, I can't say the words right now, but that's the thought. No matter what sickness, no matter what financial failure, no matter what the stock market does, I can rest in peace. Praise the Lord. Hebrews 13, 5 and 6 says, Let your conversation be without covetousness and be content with such thing as you have. For he hath said, and there's a statement that we need to take a hold of faith. He has said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. And here's the outcome of faith. So that we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper and I will not fear what man shall do unto me. Peace through Christ. That is a blessing. That is a blessing that we have. Paul is reminding all those Corinthians what for blessings they have. Number four, grace from Christ. And this is number four, uh, verse four. I thank my God always on your behalf for the grace of God, which is given you by Jesus Christ. You know, to me, Grace is one of the most beautiful aspects of the gospel. Grace is that divine influence on the heart and its reflection in the life. 
When God departs his divine character on your old heart and changes it, that's called grace. We say faith is the most important aspect of the Christian's life, but faith is just the doorway to grace. In fact, grace properly understood, if grace is not received, which is the divine, is the divine um, influence on the heart, then there probably wasn't faith. Grace is divine life, and it is never, it is given, it is never earned. You receive it as a gift by faith. Paul saw grace in the Corinthians. He saw divine life in the Corinthian church. He was there. He started. He knew. He knew divine life was there. And he, as he's opening this letter, he is thanking God that there is grace there. Look in your life. Is there divine life there? If there is, did you thank God for it lately? If you have divine life, thank God for it. You know, that song, Amazing Grace, was written by that formerly wicked man, John Newton. And we didn't read, but I've seen that there were some verses of John Newton in the, in the Bible lesson this morning. And we didn't read it. But he, it was written by a formerly wicked man who sent many others to hell in his wickedness. And yet he was saved by grace because divine life came into that man and changed him. Grace is like a fire in a stove. You can have a stove. If there's no fire in it, there's no warmth. Fire is what makes a stove warm and inviting on a cold day. It lights things up and it warms things up. And then we could ask the question, where would you be today without the grace of God? It's grace that makes us into saints, and we don't do that ourselves. We can no more become holy without grace than we can be saved without grace. So, one of the blessings from Christ is grace. We get the fire from him. <clears throat> Number five of the blessing is enriched by Christ. And that is in verse five, that in everything ye are enriched by him in all utterance and in all knowledge. And again, remember, all these things come from Christ. You are enriched by him. Spiritual riches. Here Paul acknowledges that the Corinthians had specific enrichments from Christ. And specifically here, it was special speech and special knowledge. They've been utterance means the ability to say what you know, and knowledge means the ability to know. Later, he rebukes them for the improper use of these enrichments. Tongues led to confusion, and knowledge led to pride. So while they did lack in no spiritual gift, they 
did lack in some other things. But one thing we want to establish here, it is Christ that enriches. And I, I like to think of this, it's an aspect of grace. The enrichment from Christ is an aspect of grace. And, and Paul said in Ephesians 3, 8, and he said, Unto me, who am least, less than the least of all saints. He's less than the least, but he was a saint, praise the Lord. But he's less than the least of all the other saints. Is this grace given? What for grace was it? That I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. So there are unsearchable, inexhaustible riches in Christ. And the question is, have you been enriched in Christ? If you have, there's more. <laughs> you haven't exhausted them. You're not. And there was something in the lesson, too, about this morning about that. But uh, you can't ask something too big. <clears throat> have you been enriched in Christ? You have only begun. There is more. The unsearchable riches. Okay. Number six is confirmed in Christ. And this is in 1 Corinthians verses, uh, chapter 1, verses 6 and 8. Well, I'm going to read 6, 7, and 8. Even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you, so that ye came behind in no gift, waiting for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall also confirm you unto the end. So we had two confirmations there. Christ was confirmed, and they were also confirm you to the end. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 3 says, How shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him? So what's a confirmation? What is confirmation? Well, to confirm means to remove all doubt about a matter that was hitherto uncertain or tentative. Paul could preach the gospel, and there's people that could respond to it. But that response was uncertain at times. People did that to Jesus, too. They responded to Jesus, but it was tentative many times. But then Paul saw real grace and real enrichment, and he said, our testament, our preaching of Christ that you responded to, it has been confirmed by, by your response. And basically he was saying, there is no doubt. You are for real. God has borne witness. So in verse 8, there's a promise that God would establish you. Uh, in verse 8, and also that God would establish them to the end. Now, we know that's a conditional promise, because later on in chapter 10, in the same book, Paul warns them of the Israelites and how they started. But they were overthrown in the wilderness, and it was written to the, to the Corinthians as an example. So a confirmation, that confirmation is a promise, but it is a conditional promise. But it is a promise. 
And it's a promise we can take by faith because God, who does not lie, has promised that he will confirm, he will establish, he will provide the provisions that you need, whatever you need to go through, he will provide it to the end. That's what it means, to confirm you to the end. He has provided, he will provide provision, he will provide guidance, he will provide care, he will provide grace. If Christ is confirmed in you, he will continue that confirmation. Number seven, waiting for the coming of Christ. And that is in verse seven, so that you become behind in no gift, waiting for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, that is a blessing. The word coming there is actually the same word as the word revelation, waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that word revelation or that word coming, it has the idea of a full expectancy. This is not when you're waiting for a coming, when you're waiting, it's not the sit down and wait type of posture at all. That's not what it means. It's a full expectation. It's a constant living in hope. The Lord is going to come back. You know, we say, we sing, we don't sing that song here, but this world is not our home. We're just a passing through. My home is up somewhere beyond the blue. And this song that didn't come this morning said, we call it heaven now. What will we call it then? Home. <laughs> now we call it heaven, then we'll call it home. So if you didn't get a song this morning, Neil told me, I asked him, he said it didn't go, didn't send. But the future, the world is not our home. If we have hope, if we have hope in Christ only in this life, we are of men, all men, most miserable, Paul says. So the future is as glorious as the promises of God. In fact, if you remember how fearful you were before you were saved and how you hoped Christ wouldn't come, you hoped you wouldn't die, now it's the opposite, exactly the exact opposite of that. It's the opposite of the fearfulness that you had before you were saved. I heard of a story somewhere, someplace, I don't have all the details, but there's a story about an engaged couple. They were engaged to be married. They're planning to get married. I think they even had a day. And then he was called away on duty. It was probably a wartime event, I believe, but I don't remember anymore. But he went away, and he... I mean, everything was off. Devastated their plans. And um, on the day that they had chosen to be married, the young girl went up to her room and just in her mourning and her loss, she put on her wedding dress. Just for effect's sake. She had waited, but her... It was like her expectations were dashed. But she put it on, and she looked in the mirror, and she mourned her loss. Well, back then, they had bad communications. 
So this young man, she had not heard from him, but the door opened and he comes in. Totally unexpected. And there he was. And there she was. All dressed and all ready. She was surprised, but she was ready. And waiting. And our groom is coming. We don't know when. But we're waiting. And we're going to be ready. At least that's what is pictured here. So that you become behind in no gift, waiting for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Number eight, blameless in Christ. And that's in last half of verse eight. That ye may be blameless in the name in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Of course, in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ is when he comes back and when, of course, there's there's judgment, there's rewards, there's a lot of things happen there. Have you ever been in a situation where there was wrong done and somebody was going to get into trouble for it? But you were not in the wrong. You were not at fault. You were blameless, but you were still called into this situation but you were not at fault. You know, there's a rest there. There's a clarity there. Your conscience is that clear. You can be at ease because you know you're innocent. But the question is, have any of us been blameless in life? Have, have, have we not all done wrong and are we not responsible for all the trouble we have caused and all the laws of God we have violated? But Christ, but Paul says that ye may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I'd like to read the pathway to that blamelessness and you can turn to it in first, in Colossians chapter one, verses 20 to 23. And we're going to break in at verse 20 where he's talking about, again, about the Jews and about the Gentiles. Talking about the Gentiles particularly in verse 20. And having made peace through the blood of his cross by him to reconcile all things unto himself. By him, I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven. And you, he's talking about the Gentiles particularly, but it means everybody that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works. Yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. That word unreprovable is the same word as blameless as what we had read earlier. If you continue in the faith... Grounded and settled and be not a moved away from the hope of the gospel which ye have heard and which was preached to every creature which is under heaven, whereof I, Paul, am made a minister. This is how we are made blameless. Through the blood of his cross, through the body of his flesh, through death. We, which have been alienated and enemies because of our 
hostile minds, and our evil deeds, but we have been reconciled. And that reconciliation is complete. So complete that we can be presented before God where there is no blame. There is nothing to be reproved, unreprovable in his sight. Believe me, anyone who understands just a little bit about the holiness and the righteousness and the glory of God to stand in his presence and have nothing to be reproved of you is a blessing. It's a set you back in your heels blessing. Don't be moved away from that hope of the gospel. Continue in the faith. This is a blessing of Christ. Number nine, fellowship in Christ. And that is in verse nine. God is faithful by whom you were called unto the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. We've been called into fellowship, called to companionship with the Lord Jesus Christ, called into participation with him. Jesus Christ came and and we're called to participate with him. We're told to participate in the cross, participate in the crucifixion and the burial of our old man, and participate in the resurrection of a new life. Now the Lord lives in you. Now he is your Lord. His strength is now yours. His wisdom is now yours. His life is now yours. And his burdens are yours and your burdens are his. There is this fellowship, fellowship in Christ. You become united and one in Christ. And the more fellowship you have, the more participation you have with Christ, the more holy you are. Because that is the core, the source, the impetus for a holy life is this fellowship in Christ. And we could also say we have fellowship with others that are in Christ. And that is the fellowship, other fellows, fellows in the same ship. (laughs) You have fellowship, and that is a blessing too. Most of the time, right? Well, the next one is 10, unity in Christ. And here's where that comes in at. I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that ye be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. And here is where the letter takes a turn. Unity in Christ is a blessing, but it was not a blessing that they had. And Paul stops commanding or no, he stops commending and blessing, and he now begins his reproving and exhortation. And that would be another message, many more, actually. Actually, unity would be another message in itself. But Paul, before he goes into that whole thing of pretty sharp rebuke, pretty broad, he gives them many blessings he, he just tells them that you've been called. 
and I'm going to go over it. He said, you've been called of Christ. He said, you've been sanctified in Christ. He said, you have peace through Christ. You have grace. You have grace from Christ. You are enriched by Christ. You are confirmed in Christ. You are waiting for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. You are blameless through Christ. And you have fellowship in Christ. And now, you also need unity in Christ. So, he goes over the blessings. I have a feeling that they needed that. As Paul went over and there were more tears than ink on that parchment as he was writing. The first thing that came out of his pen, out of his heart, was the blessing. And I suppose as we interact with one another, I would think that would be a very, very good way for us to interact with each other. What did he say? Nine blessings to each correction for our children. <laughs> it can be that way with each other too. Paul was real. He had bifocals on. He saw their needs and he did deal with them. But he truly did bless them. So that's what the Lord has for us this morning. Ten blessings in Christ. We are blessed. We truly are blessed. We are well off. We are happy. So let's share it with one another. So may God bless you all.